Well, good day to everybody. Uh, it's Martin Kiernan here, and uh, with me is Professor Britt Mitchell from Australia. Do you want to say hello, Britt? Good day, Martin. Nice to be with you again. As ever. And it's our great pleasure today to host Julie Store, uh, where we're going to be talking about compassion and infection prevention now. I've known Julie a number of years now. She's a, a nurse who graduated from the University of Manchester. She was actually also trained as a health visitor. Then she went into infection prevention and control, where she stayed for a number of years working in the, in the NHS and uh, allied areas, uh, eventually going on to the World Health Organization as a consultant. Um, she also, for a period of time, led the NHS Clean Your Hands campaign, which I would call the late lamented NHS Clean Your Hands campaign, because that made quite an impact here in the UK. She was president of the Infection Prevention Society as well, um, and she's doing currently supporting things like the WHO's Water Sanitation and uh, Health Programs, and she's a has her own consultancy, S3 Global, but she works now internationally. But earlier on this year, we, we got mixed up looking at compassion and infection prevention, and, and that's really what we're going to be talking about today. So welcome, Judy. Can you just give us a, a, an idea of where we started with this compassion aspect? Thanks. Thanks, Martin. And, and hello to both you and Brett. It's, it's great to be um, joining this podcast. So probably need to go back um, about a year, maybe, to last summer, and clearly everything about this compassion um, subject was was part of what was happening around the pandemic and it initially was was quite UK focused um, so and it was actually something that I became increasingly aware of through social media so there's there's lots of elements behind the scenes here but uh, around the late summer of 2020 through social media through Twitter in particular um, I started seeing and hearing some stories from people who had loved ones in care homes, care and residential homes, who since March, since the lockdown in the UK was imposed across all the UK countries, had been forbidden from seeing their loved ones in these settings. And yeah, essentially, I I was seeing more and more um, people taking to Twitter recounting some pretty horrendous and quite heartbreaking stories. I'm, I'm quite hard-nosed at, at, at the best of times, but the, these story, stories really affected me. And what was at the crux of all of this was these restrictions, people being banned, you know, husbands being banned from seeing their wives in care settings who'd been married for maybe 50 years and weeks and weeks had turned into months. And they were not allowed in to see these people who you know, were in these care homes. And it, it just seemed to be a pattern that, that seemed wrong. And what triggered my interest as an infection prevention practitioner was that these bans were being done in the name of IPC. So that probably in a nutshell, Martin, is where it started. Thanks, Julie. Uh, I just, I guess one thing that just crosses my mind before we delve into that a bit more is what do we mean by compassion? And I guess everyone had to think of that perhaps slightly differently. Um, I sort of think of compassion as sort of understanding other people's suffering and um, maybe a willingness to help and, and, and sort of promotion of other people's well-being. Is that where you come from broadly when you talk about compassion? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really good um, reflection. And, and I think there is a bit of a backstory here. So some of the work that I do with one of the WHO teams, the World Health Organization teams, is around uh, the quality of health services. 
and, you know, really supporting countries to address quality across all of their levels of their health system. And to be honest, in probably the last five years, within that quality work, so, you know, we, we were used to talking about safety and effectiveness and efficacy and people-centeredness. Within probably the people-centeredness element of that work, um, the team I work with have got more and more interested and involved in what part does compassion play in the quality of care. And so, you know, there's a bit bit of a story here, but there is a book in particular that I, I did mention uh, recently when I talked on the Weber teleclass, Martin, that I know you, mm-hmm. you've had Paul Weber on this podcast recently. So there's a, a book that I think anybody who's got a sort of nugget of interest in this, if you haven't already read, it's called Compassionomics. And it's written by two medics, two um, doctors who work in the States, And it's all about the role of compassion in healthcare. And these two doctors come at it from a very, very forensic angle. You know, they're they're doctors, they're scientists, they they, uh, know the power of um, academic publications and evidence to drive interventions and outcomes. So they, they really were interested in whether there was a science behind this and that essentially is what the book's about and and they looked at um, thousands and thousands of peer-reviewed publications in high-end academic journals and they build a really strong case to show that not only is compassion something that should happen um, in healthcare but there's there's some hard evidence for that Um, and they actually define compassion right at the beginning it's kind of what you said Brett so a lot of people think compassion is, you know, feeling people's pain, and that's part of it, but that's empathy, you know, and, and you need empathy. They say that empathy is a prerequisite or a precursor to compassion, because what compassion is, is taking action. So it's feeling people's distress and their, you know, their worries and their concerns, but not just feeling them and thinking, oh, that's a bit sad. It's actually, I'm going to do something to try and alleviate that. So for me, it's compassion is empathy plus action. And and that's what I think when I, when I've been thinking about these restrictions and not just in, in care home settings, I think there's been many restrictions across other aspects of healthcare that I'm not going to really touch on today, but you know, as IPC people, when we're informing some of these decisions or they're being taken in our name um, and, and IPC has been used as a driver or a rationale, where where's the compassion in all of that? Are people systematically thinking of every recommendation that relates to a restriction and thinking, hmm, how does that impact on the compassion side, on the psychosocial? Um, so, yeah, compassion and action. It's it's almost like infection prevention trumps all, doesn't it? Infection control trumps all, and so you you know that that's what I need to do. Therefore, that's what we're going to do. And and actually, that's a good point about the peer reviewed journals because I've actually hardly ever seen compassion mentioned in any infection prevention related um, paper. And is that because we maybe have been focused on the p value and the effectiveness of an intervention rather than the qualitative aspect, which is actually what's the impact of the intervention on people and how they feel? True, and I think you know. Again, obviously, I, I as I said, be- became involved in this with the kind of WHO quality hat on and, and read Compassionomics and listened to people speak. I mean, there's 
there's a whole it's very US centric but there's um, compassion rounds there's like regular series of webinars by some of the thought leaders in this field and and so you know I've really sort of delved into this a lot recently and you know I, if I go back 10 years 15 years in IPC maybe it was not on my radar although it, perhaps it was in a slightly different way and I may come on to talk about that if it's if it's appropriate later on but I think there has been work done in this field. If you think back to like HIV and AIDS, if you think back to um, some of the measures that we put in place in the early days of MRSA, there are qualitative pieces of research out there. Um, if you look for them on the impacts, it tends to be on the impact of things like isolation. So, you know, you've put yeah. somebody in a single room. How does that affect their mental health? How does that affect their psychosocial yeah. status? And, it, and that's a matter of compassion. But we maybe just didn't use that language back then. Um, yeah. yeah, I know Dinah Gould written a few papers on the impact of isolation and amongst amongst others. And, you know, certainly I remember as a practitioner, you'd be thinking, who needs the side room? Well, we've got somebody who needs compassionate care at the end of life versus somebody who's colonised with MRSA. And, and you make a judgment call on who, you know, whose need is greater but we don't think of it, as you say, in that upfront, compassionate manner. So, w why do you think that people were banned, you know, from care homes? What, you know, what, what caused that? Do you think was that lack of expertise in, in the infection sphere actually advising the care homes at that time, or was it just a this is the only thing we can do? I think, and I'd be, I'd be super interested in yours and Brett's take on this as well. I mean, I've, I've talked to many people, and of course you can't escape from what what happened last March, you know, I mean, the whole mm. world sort of was paralyzed by the fear. Um, and that, you know, that was actually a mechanism that was used, we know, to to influence behavior. And, and again, we've known that for many years. And from the point of view of hand hygiene, for example, people like Liz Jenner used to say, we need to use fear, but we need to use what she called minimal fear in our messaging around hand hygiene behavior change. Now, I think what happened last March was we used maximal fear and it was really absolutely effective. And therefore, you know, I think that drove what happened with the restrictions in, in all aspects of health and social care. And, and that's fine, you know, the, again, this is a matter of ethics. So if you look at some of the WHO norms and standards around bioethics, um, you know, they say that, that restricting people's liberties can be justified, but, it, you know, as long as it's evidence-based, um, they mention proportionality, and I think that's something that we, we've got totally wrong in many respects, mm. not, not all respects. Um, they say that, you know, it's ju justified if, if the risk is such a super threat to health. So, yeah, you could tick that box. But they emphasise that any restrictions should only be put in place for the absolute time that it's necessary to address the threat. And so I think I don't argue with what happened in care homes right at the beginning. I think people just put the brakes on and they said, right, we're stopping all access. It was like, we're, we're going to regroup. We know this is spread by people. We've got vulnerable people here. And those initial bans, you know, you could argue were justifiable. What I don't mm. think was justifiable was how long they were then left in place. Well, and no, the regrouping just didn't happen, did it? That was the thing. <laughs> well, even today, 
you know, there's, I'm contacted mm. by people who are saying they're still only allowed once a week to see their relative for an hour. So it's like that, that de-implementation thing that we were so concerned about in that letter that you, you were a signature of, um, thank mm. you for that. That was something we were really, really concerned about, that this would become normalized, that this would become routinized, that de-implementation would be a, a consideration. So again, you know, whoever's making those decisions, who's writing the guidance, are they thinking about things like how long these stay in place and being really clear on the advice that they're giving to people? Um, many care homes did reverse their decisions and introduce visitors safely back in the summer. So we know it happened and we know it could be done. Um, I think if, if I can just say one more thing, because I think this is actually probably important as well. Again, you know, if you if you think about I, what IPC is about, it's about protecting people from harm. And what mm -hmm. we're talking about is the harm that a lack of compassion can bring. And that's where we go back to the compassionomics and we can see that the strong evidence base for compassion as an intervention in healthcare that makes a difference to outcome. But I think what, what seemed to happen was we kind of, there was a there was an animation video, for example, that was developed. I'm sure you guys have seen it by the NHS people. Um, so it's very English centric, but it was brilliant. I think IPS were involved and it was all about the hierarchy of controls for preventing mm -hmm. COVID in healthcare. It was it was for acute healthcare, but lots of parallels for any care setting. And it nicely explains, you know through from elimination, engineering, all the five different elements of the hierarchy yep. ending in PPE at the bottom of the, the hierarchy. But nonetheless, PPE is one of the controls. And it just seems to me that that PPE was ignored and we went straight for elimination, yeah. which, you know, kind of tried to eliminate people from the lives of their loved ones. And then for forever, in some cases, people died you know, we know that many people who enter care homes don't actually have long left of their life. And mm -hmm. they were banned from seeing their daughters and sons and wives. The harm was just seen as physical, wasn't it? And the mental aspects of harm, which actually yep. at the end of life, uh, the impact is far worse than it would be at many other times of life, I think, because you know you've not got long to go anywhere and you're separated from your family. Uh, Brett, what's... Um, What's the situation in Australia? Are there bans on care homes, etc., and visiting and, and that sort of thing, and hospital visits? Uh, the short answer to that is is yes, um, in, in different forms. So uh, at the moment, just as an example, there's a, uh, an outbreak just starting to happen potentially up in Brisbane, and um, my father has just been recently put in an aged care facility, um, just a few weeks ago, and my mum can't visit him uh, at the present time. He suffers with dementia um, and gets very confused and agitated, and so she's one that can calm him down. Um, uh, but in the past, it has been quite short and sharp, so it has been a matter of a couple of days while things have had that chance to regroup, contact traces have understood, and been able to get on top of what they needed to get on top of, uh, and things then got moved on from that. So... For example, uh, last time that happened, within a few days, she was able to go back and visit again. May not be to have every Tom, Dick, and Harry coming to say hello, um, mm -hmm. but 
but certainly the the loved one was able to i think right at the beginning of our experience in australia was a very similar scenario too though where there was just a blanket um can't visit uh and same in hospitals uh and so i i hope it's a little bit more i think it's a little bit more nuanced now um than perhaps it was right at the start so perhaps it has been a bit more de-escalation um just julie i remember one one quote i think you've said in the past is if a healthcare worker could touch a resident safely so can a family member if they're wearing and following the right ppe protocols and procedures i guess and is that, I guess, what the crux of where you're coming from is we need to find a way that manages these risks as safely as possible. And think about those administrative and engineering controls that allow that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, I have to mention, I, I, I went back to the late summer of, of last year and and how I felt when I was seeing these tweets on on uh, social media recounting stories and, and I felt I had to act so again that's what compassion is all about and I just want to acknowledge all the people who stepped up because what we did in a really kind of short turnaround time was I just issued this tweet um, it sounds so, so, so banal but I just said look there's something not very good going on in care homes around visitor restrictions do any of my colleagues want to do something about it and within like seconds I was getting all these direct messages from people and Martin was one of them and I decided together with there was about 30 I think in the end we you know we thought we've got to act really quickly and one of the nursing um, publications here Nursing Times um, they contacted me and said look whatever you're doing we want to support you so within around a one-week period we convened a direct message group we had a zoom call um nursing times agreed to host an open letter um open access which is not you know that's not what their routine is so they and they've kept it as open access it's there anybody can look at it and that was in that letter you know we we laid out sort of our five considerations and one of them was what you've just said brett um but essentially we just wanted to kind of put a spotlight on this and it wasn't just IPC infection prevention and control people we had um concerned individuals and and that was fine so we had uh I think major the majority of immediate past and future incoming presidents of the infection prevention society we did have colleagues from Australia um we had um, people from uh Europe central Europe um the CEO of our one of our patient safety charities, the CEO of a charity around sepsis prevention. So quite an array of, of individuals. And it and they all put their signature to this letter and it was published. And then it was picked up, as you can imagine, by some of the campaigning and advocacy groups who, you know, were almost at this point tearing their hair out. And mm-hmm. it, 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 I don't you know, it didn't lead to an immediate change, but I think it gave some people some comfort to know that there was a scientific consensus of these experts, um, if we can call ourselves that, who were saying, look, not in our name, actually, you know, that there is, there's a way this can be solved. And I think that's all we were really trying to say in the letter was, come on, guys, let's try and be solution focused here. Let's look at the harms but also make sure, of course, that individual safety and security is paramount. But we can do this. We can make this work. It doesn't have to be like this. Um, and then we went on a 
another colleague in America contacted us um, and we did a similar thing in, in AGIC. We wrote a letter to try and put an amplification on, on that issue in the States, which we were told was an issue there as well. And I think you'd heard a colleague, Martin, speak at one of the US conferences early in the year recounting a very personal yeah. story. So it certainly yeah. seems to have been universal. I mean, why do you think if... if- if we're all busy signing a letter saying there should be compassionate care and this, these things are doable and are manageable with using the principles of infection prevention, wasn't it happening? Do you think it's that you know we were not able to influence that sector at all or was it coming down from government perhaps that this is what you're going to be doing and or wasn't there that their access to specialist infection prevention advice out there in the care homes that there may have been a few years ago, but maybe they haven't got quite the same level of access now because public health England, of course, will have been very deal- busy dealing with the actual outbreak itself. I think probably a combination of all of those things. And I think it differed definitely in the different countries of the UK. So, you know, just I want to keep emphasizing this was very much sort of UK focused, although we now know that there are issues in other countries and different actions have been taken. But it does seem to have been very political, uh, driven by fear, um, you know, the, 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 the whole way in England, for example, that care homes are regulated and how they function, mm. a whole, you know, a, 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 a big sort of pot of different things influenced this. But um what we were trying to give was uh, some assurance to our colleagues out there, a bit of to, to try and empower people who were having to try and influence decisions that, you know, we were behind you. And, and I was, again, contacted by lots of people. And I don't want to underestimate the fact that I know from those correspondences that many of my IPC colleagues were doing their damnedest to try and get their voice heard. And, and I think what seems to have happened was that our voice wasn't heard Mm. so again we then enter a whole new area of like okay so how can we make sure in the future that our voice is heard and that we're respected and that we have a seat around the decision making table where policies and guidance are being developed I mean, the people whose voice definitely didn't get heard, of course, was the residents. We seem to have locked up thousands of elderly people without their permission or even asking them or even explaining to them really why this was happening. And I I think that was a very poor aspect of it um, because, you know, I wouldn't want to be locked up without any, you know, any as thought as what this actually is going to do for my well-being. And, and you know, and even in hospitals as well, I mean, I know we've talked about care homes, but in hospitals there were people towards the end of life who were not able to see any relative at the end of life and they were doing calls over iPads and this sort of thing, which, I mean, very stressful for the, for the patient and the family, but also for the nurses trying to deal with that as well. Yeah, definitely. You know, it wasn't just in the community sector either, was it? Yes, and I think, again, this hasn't been something that I've gone and pursued, but I still am equally as troubled about some of the restrictions that have taken place and continue to take place in acute care settings. And again, I think, you know, we need to really, IPC should be seen as as the enabler. That's what we said in that letter. It's like, you know, let's really try and look at the risks and look at the hierarchy of controls and try and enable people to be with loved ones, particularly, as you say, in in end-of-life situations. Um, So, yeah, there's a whole... 
there's a whole piece of work that needs doing at some point in the future. Um, I did. I wanted to just come back as well on something Brett had said um, about you know the impact of these restrictions, and and there has been research as well um, done on this. So again, just written an opinion piece with a, a colleague from Imperial who is um, like a dementia researcher, and. We presented, we focused specifically on dementia because the vast majority, uh, over 80% of people in care homes do have dementia. And there's been a number of European studies that really have uh, seemed to indicate the, the devastating harms that these restrictions did to the, the, the mental and physical health of people with dementia. So, you know, we're seeing this evidence-based building. Um, we're seeing the evidence base around safe, um, practices with compassion building as well. So again, there's there was a webinar. Uh, I can give you the link to this if people are interested. A couple of weeks ago, by the Liverpool Dementia uh, Research Group, um, and they had a speaker from the Netherlands. So the Netherlands uh, in Europe, they they had a slightly different approach. They they did what they called an intelligent lockdown. So it wasn't as far reaching as, for example, what happened across the UK and other countries, but they did ban all visitors to care homes um, mm -hmm. in March last year. But by April, due to pressure from you know resident lobby groups and campaigners, they did a pilot in about 30 different care homes where they did start to enable and facilitate safe visiting and they measured you know did that have seem to have an impact on infection did it have an impact on the health of health workers who worked in those homes and their families and the residents and there's some really positive results and then what happened next in in the Netherlands was it's now enshrined in law that care homes will never ban all visitors again so I think that's you know that's mm -hmm. what I'd like to see here um yeah at, at a minimum just going back to um, what we in infection prevention control can do about this too. Uh, and part of it I'd say, look, we've talked about this in the past, so I'm not going to harp on about it on this podcast, but, um, you know, it is really uh, upon us as well to to work in a multidisciplinary fashion. We don't have all the solutions, nor should we be have to find all those solutions. Um, mm -hmm. And some of the solutions we need to find to make facilities that are very different in their infrastructure just as one example safe is a, is that multidisciplinary approach to look at um, for things from ventilation um, right through to how many rooms do you have in the design of them so um, I think it's really important that we take this opportunity to say let's work collaboratively in the future on this um, because that's where some of the opportunity lies arises for us I totally agree and I think I mean there's so many things I've you know, I started off, I think, by thinking that three things need to happen and then that turns into four, five, six and, you know, <laughs> kind of write a book on it. But I think multidisciplinarity is 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 critical. Um, and then, you know, even things like the competencies that we have in our different countries and societies. Um, I don't know what it's like in Australia, Brett, but I don't think the IPS competencies really mention compassion or the word, you know, mm -hmm. if you search for empathy, compassion, psychosocial, I'm pretty sure they're not there. I may have missed it. The WHO issued their competencies for IPC practitioners a couple of years ago. And again, 
the word compassion, psychosocial empathy, not not featured. I mean, it, they, these they do talk about things like at the IPC practitioner should be an advocate, should be passionate. But I want I want to see more moving forward of this specific issue of compassion. Um, it's not really fleshed out, is it? It's just there as you will be an advocate, but that's yeah, yeah. And it, and it's like you know, it wouldn't take a lot and and this may have happened you know i'm not around the decision making table in the uk at all so so forgive me if this already happened but i would want to see the hierarchy of controls in a table with in the second column the rationale when you impose these in a, let's say a care home setting so each of them rationale and unintended harms and consequences and solutions you know that would be nice that would be a nice mm-hmm. simple th- thing to see in black and white set to guide decision making um i mean i'd love to see a really good review that shows all of those things because undoubtedly lives were shortened due to loneliness and sadness that is not measured and my concern would be that this is seen going forward as that's the way you do things so therefore that's what we're going to do when in this sort of situation in future instead of having the review to say actually many of these things we could have got around and we didn't need to do that so who's going to do that and make sure that voice gets heard when there is a review? I mean, we'll eventually get a public inquiry here in the UK. Other countries will do reviews. But I really want to see the compassion element and the proportionality aspect and the actually there are things you could do here to, to minimise the risk down to you know something pretty negligible but to get the balance right going forward rather than you shut your doors, no one's in or out, which I think was – you know. Maybe understandable, and if we like Queensland, just for a couple of days while you get a handle on it, and then you can relax. Now, Brett, in yeah. Australia, it, are you are you getting good access to infection prevention advice in that sort of sphere? Then, and are specialists being listened to, or is it actually at, at governmental level they're saying, well, actually, you only have got to do it for a couple of days, and then you can relax a bit? Yeah, look, the the experience that I described in Queensland is is a Queensland experience in the context of really having very minimal community transmission. Um, okay. And the backdrop, um, you know, in 2020, there was um, some major outbreaks in Victoria and there was an existing Royal Commission inquiry going on at the time and added to that as an urgent look at, uh, look into uh, aged care was infection control and aged care. So it was a, a special Royal Commission report looking at infection control and aged care. And I'll, I won't get into the ins and outs on that because that's, a, that's a, probably a topic for another day, but um one of the major recommendations that came out uh, that has now been enacted upon by government is that every aged care facility must have infection prevention and control. Um, I haven't called them expert, but essentially infection control professional. Um, they must be embedded and they must have a minimum qualification standard. And so um, in that case, now we're having to upskill thousands of people, which is fantastic, mm-hmm. in, in infection control to be embedded in aged care facilities. So that that um, came about because of uh, some horrific things that were happening in aged care around infection prevention and control and not criticising those aged care facilities. They just didn't have the expertise and support to, to do that. And it was neglected for years. Mm-hmm. So one, one really good thing that has come from that is that that's – was a recommendation made to the Royal Commission and subsequently enacted um, by government. And government have also funded some of that uh, to, to, to a degree too. So um, I think that's a really positive um, positive outcome. Uh, there's plenty more, plenty, plenty more that needs to happen, um, but it's a starting point. 
I mean, Julie, do you think there are other positive outcomes that can come from this thing? Because that's a good example of one from Australia. Because, you know, you'd like to hope that out of all of this mess that there will be some learning that we can use for the next time and the next time will undoubtedly happen. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm positive and confident that there will. Um, and I think, you know, Brett sort of touched on there's, you know, there are so many different facets to this, as we've mentioned already, you know, in, in terms of how we treat older people, in terms of in terms of how we treat people who work in those particular environments that you know we we that's beyond our control but there are societal issues here that we we shouldn't underestimate but if we just think about what we can do as IPC practitioners and I mean this sounds a bit of a cliche but hey I think what could come out of this could be a, a true paradigm shift. And if you think about what that actually means, you know, the actual true meaning of the word paradigm shift, where you literally tear up the rule book and create a new set of rules, a new set of models, I think that that, for me, would be something that would be a really positive legacy. And I think that should happen probably internationally. Um, and, you know, I don't know how it will happen, but I think IPC people coming together and looking at now the status quo, looking at what's happened over the last 16 months and then thinking, right, let's change it and let's really hardwire compassion into everything that IPC is about and uh, create a new model of IPC. And I think that, yeah, what, why can't that happen? Why can't we you, me, the new leaders in IPC, the younger generation, why can't we make that happen? That's certainly something that I would support with every fibre in my body. Maybe something for professional societies to get together globally and, and issue a, a joint position statement to try and influence, you know, because uh, WHO obviously will, will go down that route as well anyway. Yeah, and I think to be fair as well, you know, if you look back to the original care home guidance that WHO put out, it didn't mention the word compassion. If you look at what they reissued earlier this year, it was much more about proportionality and limiting the time of any restrictions and not restricting access, if at all possible. It was much more solution focused. Mm -hmm. If we're seeing this kind of bellwether at that level, then yeah, why not yeah. Um, in, in other countries? And, and more research mm -hmm. as well. So I think, you know, hard, oh, yeah. the, the, the kind of hard science, like the p-value stuff, brilliant but let's see much more uh research on this what's, this issue so that yeah not, what's the real impact yeah and so that nobody's story has been in vain you know let's let's mm -hmm. sort of really work together in a multidisciplinary way to address that it's a, a probably a great way to to wrap it up julie and um we really appreciate your time and and your passion in this area and your drive to to take this forward um and um, and there'll be many people I hope listening out here to this podcast today who've been inspired by what you've what you've brought to the table on this topic and um, will contribute in their own way um, to to that to that as well. So um, on behalf of um, Martin and myself and all the listeners, thank you very much for your uh, for your time. And that just to give a final plug, there is a Weber teleclass on exactly this subject where Julie talks. A little bit more length about it and she'll be giving another talk about the extension of this at the ips conference uh, this year as well and on that bombshell uh that's uh time for us to wrap up so uh, thank you everyone for for listening thank you thanks to both of you as well for for putting a spotlight on this issue really appreciate it it's goodbye from me